This episode of Industry Focus comes to you thanks to NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. With NetSuite, you'll learn how to acquire new customers, increase profits, and finally get real visibility into your cash flow. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, October 4th, and we're discussing offshore drillers. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined in studio by Motley Fool contributors Jason Hall and Tyler Crow. Jason and Tyler are here today for the uh, Fool.com Writers Conference. So how, how about you all talk about you know how you all got here uh, for the show? I know Jason's from out in California. Tyler came a little bit further. You want to talk about that? Sure. Just a little further, Tyler. Just a little bit further, yeah. I, uh, I live in... Um, Malawi, it's is in South Central Africa, about a thirty hour flight. So it was a it was a long trajectory to get here. Yeah, a little, little nap on the plane, maybe the little yeah. the little neck pillow, get all situated, ready to yeah. go. Lots of movies. It's <laughs> I catch up on a lot of movies when I'm on the flight. <laughs> I hear you. Well, well, it's glad to have both y'all in the studio with us today, um, talking about <laughs> offshore drillers. So you know, first off the top for just investors, listeners, you know, what exactly is offshore drilling companies? What do they do? What are the services they provide? Who are their clients? Yeah, it, it's a really interesting industry. It's like a lot of the the oil and gas industry that it's filled with specialized companies that focus on certain things. And these are the companies that are contracted by oil producers, whether it's a, a you know nationalized oil producer, whether it's a, a one of the large international oil majors or a small independent that actually do the drilling and they do the exploration work. Um, and within within the offshore, there's different parts of it. You have more of the traditional, the shallow water. Uh, work, which is a lot of um, jack-up rigs that, you know, the rigs actually sit on the surface of the of the sea and then they drill underneath. Um, probably the biggest growing part and where, where most of the development's going to be in the in the future is in floaters. And there are two groups of, of these floating vessels. You have uh, semi-submersibles, which are able to submerse part of the rig, and then you have the true um, floating drill ships. Um, and these, these vessels are capable of, of drilling in much deeper water, um, and generally um, are capable of drilling much deeper under the under the surface to get to to where the oil and gas resources are. It's very much like a fit sort of thing. So like when you have a drill ship, you're going to be in a little bit deeper waters, probably in better, you know, water conditions. It's just like um, versus like a semi-submersible is really good for harsher environment places like say like off the coast of Norway where you have very high seas, uh, Arctic conditions, things like that. So they're kind of built to fit based on the kind of where in the ocean they are. Right. And, and can investors kind of think of, of these players as more, we talked about oil field servicers a couple of weeks ago with Jason as more oil field servicers specialized for the offshore. Is that a good way to think about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's hyper specialized too because you you know you have your major diversified oil services company, say like a Halliburton or a Schlumberger, who are actually going to do a lot of uh, some of the typical services that they do onshore as well. the 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 oil rig uh, drillers, the companies we're talking about specifically here, are ones that own the rigs themselves and lease them out to the companies. It's kind, they're very similar to an equipment rental company, except you're renting something that's $500 million and it's lasting for three years. <laughs> and, and and that rental generally, it, it's going to also come with the, the trained staff that runs, you know, runs the rigs and that sort of thing. So you're, you're, you're also renting the reputation and the capability of that particular company and their skill set in a certain area or, you know, a, a type of operation like, you know, rough seas, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's a good introduction to the space. Let's, um, let's talk about, you know, Offshore drilling has had a little bit of a pullback over the past few years, like everything in oil, like we've discussed. 
Um, you know, the, this, the, uh, there's really been a pullback in demand. You know, rig daily leases back back you know, before the downturn were somewhere in the range of eight hundred thousand dollars a day. That day rate mm-hmm. uh, for for these rigs, and now they're more down to the, you know, closer to a couple hundred thousand dollar range. Can you talk about kind of how this space has moved since the downturn and where we're kind of sitting today? Yeah, t- Tyler, I think you could probably offer a little more color, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that this has probably been the hardest hit sector and definitely the longest. Um, in terms of the downturn, a lot of the sectors are starting to bounce back, and this is the one that's absolutely taken the longest and has been the biggest beaten down. Yeah, one of the things that makes it so challenging uh, during this downturn uh, for offshore is the long-term capital commitment that it takes to build an offshore rig. So, you know, let's wind the clock back to like 2014. Uh, oil, offshore oil was going like bonkers. It was $110 everybody wanted to spend on big and in retrospect, kind of questionable uh, prospects in you know, places like the Arctic, things like that, where because we thought we were going to have high oil for a very long time. And then as the money went away, they still a lot of oil companies that were the producers, they still needed to produce oil, but they didn't want to tie up capital for that long because they weren't sure where oil was going. So they started going into the short cycle stuff that we saw moving into shale, maybe trying to juice a little bit more from your existing sources so you didn't have to spend money. And so that's why the 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 downturn has lasted so long and so severely is it's kind of one of those last barrel added sort of um, parts of the industry. And so because of that, it's why we're seeing it take so long to recover in in relation to everyone else. Right. I mean, just the amount of capital expenditure you have to have to put the put these uh, these wells out in open ocean and, and transport it around can get pretty expensive. And like you said, I mean, back in you know 2014, we were seeing break even prices on these wells at up to eighty dollars a barrel. Which today, I mean, we're excited that oil has barely cracked eighty dollars on the Brent uh, the Brent measure of uh, oil prices. And you know, we've had about uh, Forbes quoted that a trillion dollars in projects were canceled between 2014. And this year, so there's definitely been a significant pullback. But with that as well, this is the uh, the maybe the first industry to kind of get hit when oil starts coming going downhill, and it's going to be one of the last ones uh, to start moving when oil starts pouncing back. And we're seeing a little bit of signs there. So you know, we've seen an uptrend um, in uh, final investment decisions over the past few years. Um, uh, under uh, well, uh, tendering activity is increasing. We've seen, you know, we've kind of reached the cyclical bottom in Q2 2016, and it's really been trending up as far as the floaters under contract. Um, so, really, kind of seeing signs of a downturn. I mean, a, a, a more of an upturn. Um, you know, looking out over the next 18 months, are you all expecting that to continue? What, what is kind of your expectation given the current oil price environment where things are moving today? Well, one of the beneficial things that has happened, you know, you, you, every single bad experience has something good that comes out of it. And one of the good things that came out of this as a result was the fact that the industry got better at what they did and brought down their costs significantly. Um, we could call the, the 2014 to 2016 was basically an industry spanking for spending too much money. And offshore was one of the guilty suspects where you know, companies were spending money on basically like made to fit uh, every for every single well that they drilled. So everything was a unique design. Every single uh, build was unique, and the costs were really high. And so because of this, they've standardized a lot of things. The break-even costs have gone down. So on top of the 
uh, increase in the price of oil, the cost for it has gone down enough significantly that it makes it more viable to do it. Uh, you know, if you look at the international oil companies nowadays, uh, they're looking at offshore prospects in places like West Africa, Brazil, and uh, and South America, where your break-even costs are getting much more in line with things like shale nowadays, where it is forty to fifty dollars versus you know the eighty to ninety that we saw four or five years ago, which is certainly spurring a lot of that turnaround that you were talking about. Yeah, I think one of the key things to remember too is that um, offshore oil in terms of a cash production cost is is competitive with with most other resources in the world. And the issue is it's the upfront expense and it's the time that it takes to develop them. Uh, earlier, Tyler was talking about the, the quick turn stuff that's made shale so exciting and is going to continue to drive investment into shale for for the for the probably the long term because it can be so quickly brought online and start producing cash. Uh, but I think we're at a point now because the industry is so much healthier that you're going to start to continue to see more of these final investing decisions, uh, and then and the dollar numbers are going to continue to get to get bigger because the cash flows are coming in from these other sources that are going to allow, especially the larger companies, to to invest offshore as part of their long-term plays. I know ExxonMobil; that's that's a really big part of their yeah. their strategy. Certainly, ExxonMobil is is looking into some very exciting things that they have going on in certain parts of the world. But it's not just them. I mean, uh, if you I, in the most recent uh, investment and marketing pitch from Transocean, they were saying that there's about 57 projects that they expect a final investment decision over the next 18 months worth 87 rig years, which is basically like everything is broken down into day rates for rigs. And so that's what, 87 times 365, how many total days that are going to be available. So there's a lot of work coming on in the next 18 months, which should be a good sign and a, and a much healthier sign for the industry. Right. And then the la last thing I want to talk about, you know, we're going to mention Transocean and some companies on the back end of the show is that offshore production really has to increase uh, in the in the coming months and years. We, we've seen, you know, back in, uh, you know, earlier this decade, you know, replacement rates as far as recontracting re these these rigs were up, you know, 100 plus percent. And now it's down in the low 30s. So only, you know, of uh, the rigs that are coming offline, only about a third of that production is getting replaced year over year. And when offshore is a third of global oil production, right. this is a significant uh, sign that investment needs to come in place to replace that production. Uh, otherwise, oil prices are going to continue to rise as as there is a shortage. And as oil prices rise, that's even only going to make these investments in offshore mm -hmm. more compelling. So if there's not any investment in this space, it's going to have to happen sooner or later because the economics will only become more appealing. Well, another part of the challenge too is that, sure, to a certain extent, and we've seen it. You know, shale has, tide oil has replaced, um, you know, a lot of what has been lost in, in offshore and just the decline curve. But in a lot of like, I think the big the big thing with the Permian right now is we're basically at capacity in terms of uh, you know off, they just can't take out any more oil with the existing infrastructure. So it that's a, that's another bigger issue is that. You know, sure, you can continue to drill, you can continue to develop, but you have to have infrastructure in place. And that infrastructure takes years to bring online. Even if you can bring a well online you know, in a, in a few weeks now, if there's no infrastructure to get the oil out, it, it doesn't matter. So I think that's one of the things that's pushing, that's going to drive more investment uh, back into offshore, is simply because there's infrastructure there that can take that oil out. Yeah, and I guess that timeline advantage of shale is going downhill as, as the infrastructure becomes, becomes tighter. Right. 
Okay, well, in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about some specific companies that are operating in the offshore space. But first, we have a message from our sponsor. Support for industry focus and the following message come uh, from NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their businesses, and now it's available to you. The power of the world's most popular cloud management system is more affordable than you think. Save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or phone. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights to overcome the obstacles that are holding you back for free. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com slash fool. Okay. So talking about some of these offshore players, you know, we mentioned the first half of the show, there was a little bit, there's been a downturn, and we've seen almost every player is down 60, 70% uh, over the past five that's years. It? Yeah, only, <laughs> only 60 or 70%. And that's, and that's with some of these companies, I mean, Transocean year to date's up 30%. I mean, that's, it, it, they've really suffered over, over the past, over the past few years. I mean, we've talked about the, the downturn, all those sorts of things, but Let's let's talk about some of these companies. Let's see if there's a chance for them to bounce back. Before, so that, before we do that, there's some extra context that's important. These are the ones that are still around. These are the these are the ones that are still going interest. So there are a lot of others, especially smaller ones that are they don't exist anymore. You yeah. know, and that have been acquired or their assets have been acquired. So yeah, these are these are the ones that are still here. Yeah, and that, that's a good that's a good transition to go into Transocean, which just recently <laughs> this month. Acquired another offshore player, Ocean Rig. Do you want to talk about that that merger and kind of what it's done for Transocean, how it's helped their competitive position? Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know Ocean Rig, um, very small player, really specialized in the, the you know the the deepest water um, kind of vessels, but just had zero backlog, uh, and it was really just a great opportunity to acquire some really high quality assets. Almost, I don't want to say for a song, but you know, it was just it was a great situation. But I think the bigger thing with it is, it's it's uh, Transocean's. It's a it's 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 been so amazing over the downturn. It's kind of like I think the parallel for me has been Nucor, the big steel maker that has been able to leverage downturns and make really strong acquisitions at, at bargain basement prices, and it's it's going to be positioned so well coming coming out of the downturn to really be the you know the behemoth in the industry. Yeah, I actually found uh, Transocean quite fascinating because heading into the downturn, they actually looked kind of questionable. Terrible. It was scary. Their debt load was they, they enormous. Very, they, I mean, they had a lot of cash on the books, but they had a really high debt load. And if you looked at their fleet of rigs at the time, old. It, was, it was old. It wasn't very capable. And it they did look questionable. And so uh, right around... I want to say 2015, maybe a little earlier, they brought in a new CEO, Jeremy Thigpen, mm-hmm. who was from National Oil Well Varco. And he basically, I, I don't want to say gutted the company, but kind of really ripped off the Band-Aid, where he took a lot of the old, unusable, they're not going to be able to market it well equipment, and just scrapped it and says, we're not going to use these, so let's use this now, rip off the Band-Aid, keep our debt manageable, don't spend more than we have to on managing these sort of things. And it has paid off in a major way, mm-hmm. and they have been one of the ones that can actually consolidate the industry uh, right now while things are still cheap, but everyone is starting to look like it's getting better. Right. And, you know, you mentioned kind of uh, taking these rigs off the market, deactivating these rigs, and I think I think that ties into, and you also mentioned the valuation on these companies, so I think that ties into something really significant with these companies. You see it with Transocean, you see it with all the players, as that tangible book value. I mean, Transocean right now uh, is trading at 0.55 its tangible book value. 
you know, at first glance, that's gonna be like, it's incredible. I mean, this 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 thing, if you were to sell it off for its parts, would be worth double than what it's trading for in the market today. But there's a little bit hiding behind there. You talked about some of the write downs they've taken on their rigs. Do you want to talk about how to contextualize this book value in the context of there are going to be some more rigs getting getting uh, you know written down? So I think you know since the start of the downturn, Transocean has, has written off 43 of, of their rigs, and that's continuing a little bit. But yeah. do you think that's at the, at the, at the I the think we're starting to see the tail end of it. I mean, these yeah. guys really, I mean, they, they took the machete to their fleet early and often. And granted, Transocean wasn't the other one. I think Ensco did a very good job of it. Uh, Noble did it, uh, Noble Corp as well. Uh, Diamond Offshore was actually in a position they didn't have to because they already had a decent fleet already. But in doing so, I think because the industry is starting to pick up and because of the assets they have on their books today, I we could still see some write downs, but I don't think we're going to see the multi two, three, five billion dollar write downs that we saw. Oh, it seemed like clockwork in the second quarter of every year over the past few years. Mm-hmm. So, with those out of the way, we might see a few here and there. But certainly, from that valuation standpoint of that low tangible book, I don't see a point where they're going to be cutting the tangible book value of their business by half again right. to to make that valuations seem suspectly low. Sure. Yeah. And and so when we normalize the valuations of these assets, you fully expect that we will still see this business trading below its real market book value. At least for this time being, I think. Yeah, I, I think and my thesis is I've I've invested relatively heavily in a number of offshore drillers and as I typically do, I get really excited and I'm optimistic and I I go in early. Um and, and I did go in a little bit early, but you've already seen, you know, over the past year, um, some recovery in stock prices as a lot of the cutting has been done and, and the operating costs kind of stabilize. Because the reality is even if you cold stack a rig, you're still paying some operating expense to keep it there. So scrapping, getting getting them completely off the books is, is an operating cost benefit as well. Um, so I, I think, again, I think we're, we're kind of at that point now where, where the businesses are, are what they are. Um, and, and the reality is we're, we're going to see probably a year, year and a half where things are probably going to look somewhat similar to the way they are because even as these uh, new, new contracts kind of come online, there's still a lot – and even, even though the, the fleets, they've, they've cleaned up their fleets and they've scrapped what they're going to scrap, these guys still have a ton of rigs that aren't working, right? Yep. So even as they're bringing rigs online, it's not necessarily going to add like a substantial amount of earnings per share or cash flow per share value at this point. It's just going to cover, you know, it's going to kind of balance out some of their operating expenses. Yeah, I like to think of it like, um, because everything is a negotiated contract, who has the pricing power right now? And if you think about it in that way, it's the producers, the producers yeah. have the pricing, the negotiating power right now, as long as there is a lot of available rigs. We saw it in shale probably 18 months ago, two years oh, ago, yeah, land rigs, where so many rigs. there was an ex- excess amount of equipment, which meant that companies were willing to take a steep discount just to keep things working and bring some cash in the door. And I think we're going to see the same thing with offshore for a while, where you might not get great contracts because producers have the pricing power. But at the same time, you're going to see an uptick in revenue. You might start to see some break even into profitability again. But you're certainly not going to see the the gangbuster profit margins that we saw five, six years ago. Right, and, and you know, today we're looking at maybe sixty percent utilization rate for these offshore rigs versus five years ago, as you mentioned. You know, we're looking 
90% plus, which when that market gets that tight, the pricing power shifts, shifts over. Shifts back so, to the, the, the offshore rig owners again. Correct. And so, so right now, you know, that shift has not taken place. But the way we're seeing the market play out, there is a good chance that that shift could take place and really start driving profits for these guys. Any last things on Transocean before we transition any of the, any of the other players? Anything you want to call out? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about Transocean is it's not just that it's it's you know going to be the dominant behemoth in terms of its total size, um, but I think there's there is value there. I mean, again, half half of book value, and it's going to probably continue to trade at a discount to book value for a while. But I think if you if you're patient and you're and you're willing to invest and ride out whatever happens, I think even starting a position now. As you know, the market tightens and day rates come back up, and the valuations start to normalize. I think there's a tremendous amount of upside if you can just ride out that volatility. Yeah, and the only other thing I would say about that too is uh, about Transmotion sp- specifically is that you know watching them over the past five years, you have you, you have to really consider management and how they've been able to handle the yep. downturn and how they're going to handle the upturn. And if you've watched what Transocean has done over the past five years, I. I I think it would be hard to argue who has handled probably a less favorable situation going in and putting themselves in the position coming out. Yeah. Okay, let's um, let's swing now into um, Insco, which is another another company we mentioned. Another company trading, you know, point four four its tangible book. Another company just uh, made an acquisition, Atwood Oceanics. Let's just give an overview on this business. What what makes it different from Transocean? I mean, there's going to be a lot of similarities, uh, but you know, what kind of makes it stand apart on its own? I think the the the, the first thing that's different is it's much smaller, and it has a much smaller backlog of work, which on one hand, that creates additional risk, right? Because the nice thing about a backlog of, of work is you have contracted revenue that's coming coming in, so there's some predictability. Uh, but but the thing that makes makes Insco really interesting from an investing perspective is you know you've got some similarities in terms of management that's been really nimble, uh, but the way that they're kind of playing the market I think is is what I really like and I think in general now is the time that it works as you talk about day rates having come down so much a substantial portion of that was really struggling um, uh, contractors that were just they were taking revenue however they could get it and. The, the people that are left, the companies that are left, the people making those decisions are a hell of a lot more disciplined. So I think that that you're going to see day rates start to you know continue to creep back up because there's a lot less of you know just taking whatever revenue they can get. So even though there's still an oversupply and yeah, the producers definitely have the the, the, the leverage, um, the producers that are here, you know Insco's CEO on the latest earnings call, um, he said flat, flatly that they have no interest in signing long-term deals at current rates, and you know, like a third of their a third of their active vessels are are not under contract, but they have a lot of liquidity, so they can they can ride it out. So they're in a position where they can take these you know one well two well deals, bridge the gap, tap their liquidity if they need to, and then as the market tightens then they can start signing these long-term contracts at higher day rates. And it's going to take a couple of years for that to play out. So the thing that I like about Insco is because they have a great fleet, they have some really, really high-quality vessels, and they have the liquidity to kind of ride things out. And, you know, it's, it's from a valuation perspective, it's like, you know, 42 43% of book value. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's even more potential, potential upside there. But there's more risk, too. I'm going to be the, the cold water person on Ensco just a little bit. I, I actually agree with a lot of what Jason had to say on this one. The only thing that kind of gives me a slight pause with them is uh, Transocean is basically offshore de- or deep offshore floating right. semi-submersibles only. 
Ensco has a mixed uh, fleet. Of, also has shallow water jackups, and it is a very it's a much older fleet. Um, we were talking about write downs, and I wouldn't be shocked to see with somebody like an Ensco with these older shallow water assets possibly being scrapped and seeing um, some turnover there that may kind of hamper earnings for a little while longer. Uh, they do have some good contracts on that shallow stuff. They work very heavily in the Middle East uh, with like Saudi Aramco and things like that. So it's not like a super risk right now, but it, looking down the road, I would not be shocked if we saw some sort of turnover on that that could kind of dampen the returns that you would get in somebody that was a more pure uh, deep shore or with, sorry, more pure um, new fleet. Yeah, that, that's fair. I think it's also worth pointing out that it is, it's the least important part of their fleet in mm -hmm. terms of cash generation. Right. So I, I, that's 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 a real risk, but it's it's just want to make sure nobody overstates the the potential risk there. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, yeah, and like you said, I mean that that backlog, you know, is an asset to some businesses and that they have this reliable cash flow, but it also can be, you know, an asset not to have that because when the, those prices tick up, you have available, you know, uh, assets that you can really lock in those prices whenever you do get a backlog, maybe get it at a higher rate. It's like hedges for an oil producer. You know, if, if your hedges, you know, lock in your, your revenue, but they cap your upside, you know, you got to factor that in too. Okay. All right. So maybe a little bit more quickly here. We're, we're kind of running long. Uh, let's talk about uh, Diamond Offshore, uh, another, another operator uh, in this space. Uh, again, what makes them stand out between you know the Enscos and the Transoceans that we've talked about? Uh, Diamond has, of all of them, has probably done the best job during the downturn. They actually had a very very small fleet, but it's a very highly capable fleet and something that um, is pretty well contracted already. It, talking previously with the idea of, uh, you know, they're like the exact opposite of Ensco in the sense that everything's very relatively well contracted for a long time, and so you're going to get a good return now, but it's capped versus uh, something like Ensco where you're going to have a higher upside. So at least on that end, um, I, th I think it's it's probably the safest bet to do fine, but you're not going to see probably something as a higher return later on. So yeah, so we're looking at Diamond Offshore, you're looking for the floor, you buy Diamond Offshore, you're looking for the ceiling, you buy Ensco, you're looking for a little bit of diversity. Diversification. Yeah. Maybe you look at Transocean. It's really all kind of different risk risk appetites Absolutely. that uh, investors might be looking for. Um, okay, we kind of we kind of you know we're pretty quickly on Diamond Offshore, but I, I think you know uh, listeners will try to understand what, what's going on there. Let's let's go to uh, Sea Drill. Probably the most interesting. I don't think of either companies. of us can be very fair with Sea Drill because I think we both <laughs> lost a lot of money on Sea Drill. Anybody yes. that uh, invested in Sea Drill a few years ago, and I know both him and I did. So. If anything, this might be emotionally charged. Yeah, the, the fact that I'm going to brag and say that I sold half of my stock before the company went bankrupt um, is just, just telling. Yeah, yes, very telling. Very yes, telling. and just for listeners to get to get some color, uh, you know, Cedrill emerged from bankruptcy back in April, and as a result of that, you know, equity shareholders prior to the bankruptcy really kind of got hosed. I think only two percent of the equity post bankruptcy is in the hands of people who are holding equity. Uh, prior to bankruptcy, so it, it, there's really been a lot of dilution, you know, paying off yeah. those creditors with equity. Um, but you know, now that it's emerged from bankruptcy, do you think it's in a better position? Have they cleaned up the balance sheet through that Chapter 11 filing? 
What is y'all's assessment of the business going forward from here? It's kind of yes and no, right? I mean, so it's the balance sheet's certainly stronger. They have more cash on the books, um, which is good. They they were able to address a lot of their. So you talk about going back to when there was just easy money and everybody was throwing money at offshore. And one of the big mistakes that Sea Drill made was new builds, just tons and tons of new builds that it had on its books. Where you know we're talking you know a billion billion and a half a year that it had to put into to get these new builds ready to deliver and at the same time paying this insane dividend and essentially using the debt that it was taking on to pay the dividend so it could use cash flows to to pay for these new new builds and it compounded kind of everything right and so you you, you fast forward to to where we are today and it's still kind of dealing with that because some of some of those new builds are still in the books and it's got these strange deals to sell them off um, once they're once they're finished being built, but but I think the the fleet's in good shape, but there's not a ton of backlog, right? So it's it's and it's it's like a it's I don't want to say it's a it's a bigger insco without 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 the older vessels, but that's kind of a kind of a good way to think about it. I'm just I'm not because of its size, I'm not sure, and the fact that it still has some some new builds coming, I'm just I'm not sure. I'm th- I'm interested because it looks cheap. Maybe I'm just jaded. I'm going to say I'm a little bit jaded too. And uh, it's one of those – everything on the on what he said about the fleet is right. I guess the one thing that – and I'm actually maybe just going to kind of punt on this one. I feel like this is one I really need to go dig into the financials a lot more. Which we finally got two and a half months after emerging from bankruptcy. So yeah. once, uh, once I actually have time to dig into the financials a little bit more, I'll be able to make – speak a little bit more clearly on this one. So I'm going to punt on that one for now, aside from my anger from previously. <laughs> right. So, so for the listeners, it's something to watch. You know, as Jason mentioned, with that with that newer fleet and, and less of a backlog, it's another kind of that high upside play like you're looking at with Insco. But you got a whole wrench thrown into that with they just came out of bankruptcy. Their financials are a little bit wonky now with, uh, you know, coming out after that. So Definitely something to keep an eye on. Maybe something to wait and see, see how things play out over the next few months to to kind of assess uh, an investment uh, opportunity. All right, you know, going away. Let, let's let's talk about we 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 spent a lot of time talking about this industry looks like it's set up to really have a, an inflection point, start moving to the upside. What would have to happen to disrupt that thesis? Yeah, I, I think oil prices collapsing again. Um, the, you you go back to to the latest you know the, the most recent you know oil collapse and it was really just a matter of oversupply right I mean that was that was the big thing uh, that that happened and, and it looks like we have the opposite situation now right because you think about offshore and the decline you think about the capacity issues uh, with growing shale the biggest shale plays it's going to take some time to develop the the capacity there you think about what's going on with some of the OPEC countries some of the larger national oil uh, uh, countries. And it's kind of a mess. You think, Iran, you know, that's we're about to shut in a lot of oil there. Yeah. Venezuela. Um, I mean, people are leaving the country. Yeah. Every single day. I mean, yeah. Right. So, so I, you know, I, th- I think the biggest thing that makes makes offshore different again is the fact that these these projects take so long to develop that this is not going to be a lot can happen in four years that's the thing it's the time right that's exactly it it's it's the time you know you think about the 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 permian play and the opportunities there 
you can bring a ton of oil on super quick. You know, one quarter to the next, things can look really, really different, uh, generally to the upside. Um, but in offshore, it's just it can, it can really take a long time. So I think kind of the way anybody that wants to invest in this industry, you you have to be willing to kind of play the longer game um, because it's going to take probably another year and a half to two years of of tightening of the supply and demand of the vessels because there's still a ton of old vessels out there that other companies are operating that need to go away um, to to really kind of put some of the leverage back for for pricing to to go up and it's just going to take time. Yeah, I yeah. think that's the bottom line. And the the biggest risk is that something changes in four years. Like we look at it today right now and everything looks favorable, but three years down the road. Could we see uh, a demand response that is unfavorable? Could we see um, shale take off more than expected? Could we see other shale assets outside of the United States take off? It's just one of those things where the realm of possibility becomes higher. And so your kind of degree of difficulty of that paying off three to five years just makes it a little bit more challenging. And so kind of invest appropriately. Right. And I I think one thing to point out to investors, or the thing that I think about is, you know, these businesses, we're investing on a valuation basis. These are all value plays that they've been beaten down too hard. You know, everybody left them for dead, and you're coming to buy them today. And, you know, what I've seen in my experience as an investor, when you're, when you're investing in value, in value plays, if you feel super comfortable, you're probably in trouble, okay? <laughs> you need to feel a little bit uncomfortable when you're going into these. And, and th th these companies are no different, you know, like I said, left for dead really in an industry that everybody everybody thinks renewables are taking over tomorrow. Uh, so you, you really have a chance to have a contrarian play in an industry that really has a chance to, to move forward. Um, any last thoughts before we uh, send it away? I think it's, it's, this is an excellent place to look at making multiple investments over a period of time as you observe and watch what's happening versus going all in at this point. I think that's probably the best way most people should consider investing in it. Awesome. What he said. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, awesome to have you guys on. Looking forward to, you know, the fool.com conference over this uh, these next couple days and, you know, having all the writers in town. Uh, for our listeners, as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Jason Hall and Tyler Crow, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.